Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, I'm sharing time with my friend, Martin Moore. Martin is best known for his leadership performance development. He's also a sought-after speaker and the co-founder of Your CEO Mentor, a company whose main focus is to improve the quality of leaders globally. Throughout his 33-year-long career, he worked his way up from a university dropout and an entry-level position in software development to later becoming a CIO and an SVP and a head of strategy. One of my most favorite things about this incredible human is his ability to give credit to everyone else, including his daughter, his team, and his clients. His book, No BS Leadership, is one of the best books I've ever read. Practical, empowering, and applicable now. Please welcome Martin to the show with me. Hello, Martin, and welcome to the show. We are so excited to talk to you today. Hey, Stephanie, it's fantastic to be here. Absolutely. So let's just jump right in. I was doing the research and I was completely fascinated. But then when you got online, I was totally sidetracked by your spiffy jacket. I'm excited to talk today about turning obstacles into opportunities. And I wanted to start with university as you and I had so many similar experiences. You went to some amazing schools and then you dropped out. Why? Yeah, well, I mean, I had it a bit easier than you in my early upbringing, Stephanie, I've got to say. I, I came from a family that really believed in the value of education. I didn't come from money. It was a typical, you know, middle-class Australian family. But my parents sent my brother and I to one of the top schools in Australia, in Sydney. Mm. And it just happened to be a school where you had to be a boarder. You couldn't be a day student, you had to board there. And so, whereas during my high school years, academically, everything was fantastic. In terms of sporting achievements, everything went brilliantly. And then I got out of school and realized that I was completely immature socially. Oh, interesting. And, and I just did not know how to handle things. So I came out of an extraordinarily structured environment and went into a completely unstructured environment in university. And I did not cope particularly well, let me tell you. What did that look like? <laughs> Well, it looked like a lot of late nights drinking, uh, working in the cocktail bars of King's Cross, which is sort of like nightlife slash red light district in Sydney, um, sleeping in late and missing lectures. Yeah, you know, the usual deal. Like we all have to do something like that. And um, I think I learned a lot of lessons there that have held me in really good stead for my whole life. Uh, Life lessons, right? So I I think that's so important. Um, And we're going to talk about that when we're talking about kind of your next step. But you know, today, you know, I have three lines of business in my, in my company. One of them is performance coaching, high impact performance coaching, real ones, like with measurable success. Like what is your measurement of success? And then we have business consulting and then we have crisis management. I always find it extremely interesting how incredibly intelligent these people who have just finished business school or these people who are taking entrepreneurship studies right now, but the actual common sense, just the ability to actually critically think or problem solve is very junior compared to when we were younger. Do you agree with that? Look, I don't know. I haven't actually thought about it in those terms, Stephanie. I think, um, you know, you've got a lot of very, very bright young things coming out of, you know, college all the time. 
Absolutely. And, and that will never change. Whether they're equipped with life skills or not is a completely different question. Mm. And I think as much as you can be intelligent, there's a thing about processing thinking, as you said, problem solving, critical thinking. And let's face it, these days, a lot of critical thinking has been dumbed down with all of the massive benefits of technology and the internet. We're being dumbed down because we're getting fed the stuff that we already believe. Yeah. And we get fed more and more of that. So, so my big thing about how I like to live is that I love to be challenged, whether I'm watching a movie for entertainment, whether I'm reading a book, whether I'm doing something in business, I love to be challenged to be able to say, well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe what I'm thinking isn't the right way to think and being open to other possibilities. So as I like to say, the older I get, the less certain I am about practically everything. So I could not agree with you more. And I am so open to changing my perspective. And I'm very open about it and I'm very transparent about it. So there will be times where I've come out and I've said, hey, this is what my belief is. And then maybe in a year or two, you know, I meet someone like you who's had a completely different experience and they sit down and we have a really thoughtful conversation and it changes my entire viewpoint. And I'm so open to that happening because as you said, as I get older, I'm not really sure about very much. So I, I love that, that we share that same philosophy. Tell me about your first job, your entry-level position. Well, I was um, a massive disappointment to my parents by dropping out of law school. And to be perfectly honest, they handled it brilliantly. They could have been a lot more disgruntled about the fact that I'd just blown all of those tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars they spent on my education over the years. And they sacrificed a lot to make sure that I got the education. And then, of right. course, I just went and squandered it. So I was kicking around in the bars of King's Cross for a couple of years, just working, having a great time. Uh, learning about what life was like on the ugly side. And I realized that even though it was a heap of fun, my brain was turning into porridge. So I had an older brother who was about 18 months older than me. We concocted a plan to get into this burgeoning field, this new up and coming field of computer science. Now, back in those days, it was not even close to cool to be into computer programming, right? Not even close to cool. These days, if you're a coder, you're the hit of the party, right? But back then, it was very, very uncool. But we could see it as an up-and-coming thing, so we both did diploma, uh, diploma courses in um, software design and development, and I went to work for one of Sydney's large banks. Now, because I had such a great background and basis in my education in my early years, I learned really, really fast, and I was able to move really, really quickly in that industry. So I really caught up for lost time very, very quickly after I once got serious about doing a proper job. Wow. So let's go back really quick and talk about your parents. How, did you get kicked out of school? No. Okay. Well, so you just said, I'm, I'm done. Well, I, yeah, it was sort of a, a parting of the ways that I think was quite mutual. Right. Um, the, the dean of the faculty called me into his office one day and said, Mr. Moore, do you actually have your heart set on a career in the law? And I sort of shrugged my shoulder and said, well, you know, I'm not really. And he said, well, I'm here to tell you that the law would not miss you. Oh, so, okay. So, yeah, so, so we, we negotiated an exit, put it that way. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you called your parents or were they local? Did you go home and talk to them or did you talk they, to them over the phone? They were local. I eventually plucked up the courage to, uh, to go and see them. I used to visit them every you know, few weeks or so. So, yeah. So I told them face to face and um, yeah, they were okay. They just sort of raised the eyebrows and said, well, now what? And I said, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's tomorrow. It's today now. So I don't know. Wow. That's incredible. So when we were looking through the, the, your, your trajectory, you have so many things that I could share with my audience. There's so many different aspects. I, I literally wanted to make this a two-part series because it was so interesting, especially getting to the book. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is I want to talk about some of your key mistakes that you made in your career and what are the things that you did to overcome them right now with the great resignation being so kind of, you know, forward facing, 
I get reached out constantly on LinkedIn or DM'd on Instagram constantly saying, I made this mistake. Um, I'm not sure how to recover, um, whatever it may be. Maybe it's getting out of university. Maybe it's, you know, not keeping up with your boss, whatever it may be. What are some of the mistakes that you made, Martin, that were you kind of look back and you're like, those were significant. And how did you get through them? Mm. Well, you know, it's funny when I look back on mistakes, nothing really springs to mind as being massively monumental for me. I was making micro mistakes all the time, but because I was always open to the possibility that I didn't know what I was doing, and I probably had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about the having not finished my you know, first degree thing, I was very aware of the fact that every little thing I did, I needed to improve on all the mm. time. And so I had micro mistakes every single day. Most of them were mistakes more around how I managed the relationships around me. I'll give you a good example. When I left my first job, HR called me up and they said, We'd like to do an exit interview with you. We want to know why you're leaving. Now, at this stage, I didn't understand the theater of an exit interview. Right. <laughs> so I went into that. This lovely young woman from HR took me out to lunch. We had a couple of glasses of wine. She asked me what was going on in my department, if everything was okay. And I unloaded lock, stock and barrel. And I told her everything that I thought about how the department was running, my boss, who was completely incompetent. And I talked through all of this. Now, this, the blowback from this was enormous. This all got documented put into a file, and then was later used as a, right, here's something that's been said, we've got to investigate it. I mean, it turned into a whole thing. And that was just my immaturity and naivety, not understanding how these corporate processes work. So there were mistakes like that where I just would shake my head and say, oh, that was like super dumb. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that again. And little things that were more about living in a corporate environment and having corporate maturity, I think were, were probably most of the mistakes. I was you know, fortunate to be born with intellectual horsepower. I was quite gifted, luck of the draw. Things came fairly easily to me in technical terms, which was good, but it was really about understanding how to build those relationships where most of my mistakes were made early on. One other thing that I think is absolutely worth mentioning is that as a young leader, I, I was awful. I was awful because I was still trying to prove that I was good enough. I was still trying to prove that I was okay, that I could do my job, that I was brilliant. And so while I was trying to dazzle everyone else with my own individual brilliance, I was, of course, leaving them in my shadow. I was demotivating them. I was, I was, you know, usurping their roles. I was doing a whole range of things that, as a leader, are just the worst things you can possibly do. And so it took me a while to get through that. But fortunately, I had just this tiniest little modicum of self-awareness. And of course, that drive to improve that led me to think, well, hang on a minute. This is not the way to do things. Like I've, got, I've got to think of a better way to do this because I can see the impact it's having on my team. So I think that's so important for our listeners because self-awareness and because when you do have that chip on your shoulder, when you are constantly trying to prove to yourself, sometimes, I mean, I did it as a young leader too, which we'll talk about, you know, you're not really caring about those people as foundational people. You're just jumping on the people to get to the top or to get to your perception of good enough. So I think that's hugely important in becoming self-aware at a younger age. And then you make it to the C-suite and you inherit nothing but problems. What is going on in your head? <laughs> I had a fantastic C-suite career because I had such a variety of situations and circumstances and uh, experiences to go through. So the very first C-level job I had you know, over 20 years ago was chief information officer as you know, head of IT and technology for a big mining company in Australia. I'd been there for perhaps only 18 months when a hostile takeover was made by a larger company, a global miner. And so going through that process, being on the wrong end of a hostile takeover, was something that helped to shape my leadership capability enormously. And 
you know, there's all those moments, Stephanie, where you have to make a decision to do the right thing or to do the easy thing and follow the path of least resistance. And it was really in those sorts of situations that my leadership character, my leadership fingerprint was actually forged. And so obviously with the work that you do in crisis management, you'd be very familiar with the dynamics and the pressures that come in those highly tense, high stakes corporate situations like M&As, IPOs, divestitures, the things that happen that are massive events in the life of a company and the people who work for it. Well, and I think too, which obviously is a whole other different, it's another podcast, but just the overall morale of people when they're going through something like that and how leadership shares the information. You know, I, I'm always of the sentiment, bad news doesn't get better with time. And so <laughs> when you go through divestiting, it, it's very, very, very difficult with the morale of what people, what, what pe what's happening. When you're doing an M&A, people are like, am I going to be chosen? Am I not? Am I part of it? Am I not? So it's very difficult. And it's very, it's not only difficult emotionally, but it's difficult mechanically. Like where do I fit and what will yeah. my role be? So I think that that's really important. What were some of your keys um, that you took away to pull off massive turnarounds that you have? You've done it twice now, right? Yeah, yeah, a couple of, couple of big turnarounds. I, th I, think, I think in turnaround terms, the number one principle that the people who built the house can't renovate it. And so going into an organization where I look around and I see a status quo that is way below par, there's a couple of things that come with that. The first is the belief that everything's okay. And if you remain insular as an organization, as a workforce and as a leadership team, you can become convinced fairly, fairly quickly that what you're doing is fine. Now, the market will tell you at some point that it's not. You'll fall behind your peers. You'll find it difficult to get business. You, you won't be profitable over time. But it's amazing how many companies can fall into this false sense of security with being underperforming and not knowing it. And so the one good thing about what I've done jumping between industries and different job families and different contexts is that I know what good looks like. I've been able to see that. And when you've seen what good looks like and you walk into something else, you go, whoa, 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 it hits you like a pie in the face. And so it's a case of, whoa, we've got to do some things here. So making change like that is very difficult because trying to explain where you're trying to get to is like trying to explain color to a blind person. It's very, very difficult to even articulate what you're trying to achieve and why. So I have this thing, start with why. It's not original. <laughs> sounds very Simon Sinek-y. <laughs> does, does it? <laughs> <laughs> kind of sounds like it rings a bell. But, but look, I love the simplicity and the power of that. Right. And, and Simon Sinek came up with something so brilliant in its simplicity, which is, you know, start with why? Well, of course, you know, as soon as those, you know, three words come out of someone's mouth, you go, well, of course you need to start there. And so understanding why change is required and being able to relate that to people who can't see the broader impact of what they're doing on a day to day basis is very difficult. I've got my job. I've got the things I need to do. I'm getting paid each month. I've been doing this for 10 years. Why do I need to change? So the, the impetus for change is sometimes hard and you need that burning platform. But you've also got to be prepared to make some, some pretty big calls in terms of people and you know, organizational strategy. So you know, when it comes to people, it's, I said, very hard to explain what needs to be different, how and why. It's much easier to bring someone in and say, okay, this person is the sort of person we're looking for. Watch them. They're already doing the things that need to be done. They're doing them the way they need to be done. Be like that. <laughs> you know? And so sometimes it's setting up that exemplar, that role model, and saying this is the sort of performance we're looking for in terms of what they focus on, the level of commitment, uh, the values they, they, they lead by, all of those things. Let's develop those in all of us. So you said a few things that I want to recant for the audience. Sure. Um, the first thing is, is, is I could not agree more. So when you, when, because I do global consulting all over, okay, when you walk in and it's wrong, 
it is raw. It's 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 <laughs> deafening. It is it is so wrong. And I may or may not have gotten a nickname called the Dream Killer because I do walk in and go, "What is going on?" <laughs> My two biggest things is, can you please please not drink your own Kool Aid? That is, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. awful. And then I would say the second thing is, is if I hear the answer, which happens all the time, well, we've always done it like that based on Absolutely. what measurement, based on what metrics and based on what market. So I always try it, but you nailed it beautifully, Martin. It's like you can't change it with those people that are running it because they don't see because they're they've drank their own Kool-Aid. So yeah. I think it's so important to go in and actually, you can do that to some, some people, get the right person point and say, hey, what do you think about making this change? And sometimes that works. But as a whole, the turnaround status of getting there sometimes takes longer when you do it that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think change has to get momentum. For sure. So when you see, uh, change takes long enough as it is when you're talking about organizational culture. But if you try and drag that out over five years, you, you've already lost. The change will be incremental and it'll be one <clears> step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back all the way. You need to get momentum and you need to get that cadence in the organization of execution and delivery. Otherwise, you'll be exactly where you were. So you're running this multi-billion dollar corporation and you've, you're getting it changed around. You're getting things going well. And then you decide, meh, I'm good. I'm going to go start a leadership company. I'm just going to just take <laughs> off away from this completely predictable salary. And I'm just going to go start my own thing. What was going through your head and how did you make this decision? Well, funny you should ask. It was quite a few years ago, Stephanie, that I'd worked out I wasn't supposed to be a corporate executive. And that happened in 2007, funnily enough. I just didn't know what shape, form or vehicle it was gonna take. And so I'd worked with a coach, a guy by the name of Colin Clark, who'd basically helped me to tap into what was my true nature and purpose. Q, X-Files theme here, whatever it is. But really to tap into what it was that drove me, what, what draws me towards my true purpose. And what I discovered then was that my whole reason for being on this planet is to have impact on other people. A positive impact in the largest way I possibly can by getting in front of them and giving some sort of message. And I didn't know what that message was. And as the next 10 years went by, I worked out what it was that was probably my superpower. And that was to take extraordinarily complex systems of business, human interaction, strategy and so forth, and to break those down into relatively simple executable concepts. And so once I realized that was my superpower, I was in my chief executive role at CS Energy at the time, an ongoing conversation started with my daughter, Emma, who was the one who convinced me to start the business. And she was saying, you know, you, you've got so much more to put into the world, Dad, you know, you, you can do all these things and I've benefited from, benefited from this firsthand, but you need to get on a broader platform for this. And I wanted to paint on a bigger canvas, right? It was that simple. So I wanted to dip my toe in the water and I said, well, you know, when I finished at CS Energy, I'll get another CEO job and I'll, I'll start a side hustle. And she just looked at me and said, you know, if you were mentoring, you know, someone who came to you with this problem, what would you tell them? I'd tell them to burn the boats and get into it full time and do it as hard as they can. So isn't said, it well, terrible though, when you hear it from your kid? Like, isn't it kind that. of like, doesn't it suck? Like. It does. She, she held the mirror up to me and she's, she's the most brilliant business partner you could ever hope for. She runs the business. She's chief executive. And um, when I said to her, you know, look, I'm, I've always wanted to write a book. I'll start with a book. She said, Dad, we're not starting with a book. A book is so 2010. We're going to start. We're going to start with a podcast. And the, the amount of learning I could do from my daughter, who at the time was you know not even 30 years old, um, when she taught me about how business works. I mean, 
she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give away our best stuff for free. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not how business works. Come over here, darling. I'll yeah. explain it to you. Come sit next to dad. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> I know. I know. But so, so that realization and, and trusting her to talk me through how this new world of digital business works was fascinating and inspiring. And it really, you know, I said to her, I said, well, you know, there's no downside for me. I've got, let's, let's have a crack at this for six or 12 months. The strategist in me was still saying in the back of my head, Marty, don't do it. You're going into the most crowded marketplace on the planet with zero barriers to entry. Like, really? Are you going to do that? You know strategy. Right. So, right. so yeah, so, so there was a little bit of, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth around that. But once I decided to make the jump, it was, I have not regretted it for a day since I started, even, you know. So before, tell me, so do you guys fight? I don't think we fight. I, I think we both respect each other enough to treat an interaction like we have with our business very professionally. So it's the same as if I was working for someone else and, you know, having a conversation with the chairman of the board or, you know, I was having a conversation with one of my direct reports. It's, it's exactly like that because we have the respect there. And because we know each other so well, it's really easy to pick up on those tiny little shifts in, you know, tone or whatever. And I'll go, mm, okay, let's, let's park this for a moment. We'll come back to it next time. Or, or you know, Emma will say to me, hang on, Dad, you're, you're, you're feeling a bit stressed today. What's going on? And we're doing this like halfway across the world. She's based in Sydney, I'm based in Boston. But knowing each other so well opens the door having those really, really good, robust conversations without ever arguing, if that makes sense. That's, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's incredibly beautiful that you're able to do this with Emma. What does Emma bring to the business that you don't? Oh, she brings an energy that I haven't had since I was 32. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a high energy guy. I'm always on the go and my productivity is high, but she leaves me in her dust. She really does. She's an incredibly innovative thinker. And yeah, I can be innovative, but it's not my natural posture. My natural posture is you know, logic, data, thinking about how things hang together. As I said, contextualizing, all that sort of stuff. But she's like right on that leading edge of innovation. And she's, okay, we're gonna do this next. We're gonna do this next. We're gonna do this next. So she's always three steps ahead of me. So she brings that, she brings organization skills. I'm about as organized as a fruit salad and ice cream. Mm, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Gross. I, I, I prefer to stay at in, in the helicopter at you know thirty thousand yeah. feet, right? I, I I like to think about big picture and stuff like that. I can do detail. Mm -hmm. I know I can do detail when I need to, but it's not my preference. Right. And and Emma is incredible around detail. Nothing gets gets past her at all. She's incredibly detailed, and she's analytical, and she's you know incredibly bright around knowing what to do when. So people look at, you know, where our business is. They look at, you know, my profile on social media, the book publishing, the podcast and everything else. And they say, wow, Marty, you've done a great job. And I go, well, you know, I've got some good content, but I'll tell you what, it's Emma that's done the great job. Wow, we need to get Emma and Devin together. I feel like um, that was really, I mean, I was so focused on strategy and I so focused on data and logistics. And when she would come in, I literally felt like she was light years ahead. Podcast, what, me? Oh. I've never even listened to a podcast. Like, what are you talking about? And then the breadth and the depth of teaching, which my whole entire thing for me is impacting and inspiring people to get them to believe in themselves to get them to believe right. that they are truly capable of this thing, whatever this thing happens to be. But I was still doing it kind of one person at a time, you know? Sure. And she was like, I mean, she was just, this is the plan. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of things there. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally understand that. <laughs> awesome, awesome, but scary, right? But this, but this is the power 
right. of you know of digital businesses, the impact you can have. You know, so is there any way I could have ever had the sort of impact I'm having with a podcast? Because even if I was chief executive of one of the top Fortune 500 companies, what I realised was how many people am I directly going to impact? I don't know, maybe a hundred, right? And fifty of those don't want to be impacted. That's right. So, so, so instead, having having the podcast in over a hundred countries and having leaders all over the world every week who are picking up the content and using it to be better leaders, like that, that just floats my boat. What can I say? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. 2022 for us was a lot more intentional. I said, you know what, the guests that I want on, I want to be able to to really feel them. I want to be able to understand and learn from them because if I'm learning from them, that means everybody is. So I just really appreciate that so much. And I'm so happy that you and Emma have such a special relationship. Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Talk to me about the book, No BS. The title is impeccable, but I love that the younger generation hustle and the real world, how you bring that together in this book. You say that this book teaches leaders what isn't taught in business school. And that for me was everything because I feel like we need Marty after business school to teach them really how to run a business. Talk to me about the book. Yeah, look, I, and I think just on that comment, Stephanie, I think there's an absolutely critical need for business school. So I don't teach the hard schools of business, you know, finance, economics, marketing, you know, all that sort of stuff. What I do is look at the most neglected part of, you know, being a corporate executive or running your own business, which is the leadership piece. So the problem that I found was there wasn't really any focus on leadership development. It was an afterthought in most companies. So yes, they'll put you through a leadership program, but there's no systematic development, mentoring and so forth. You want to get into a career as a doctor or a lawyer or a marketing person. Well, guess what? You've got you've got four years of college. You've got post grad. You've got to get experience as an entry level person. And sort of ten years later, you're starting to get okay at your craft. Now, if we put anywhere near that focus onto leadership, it would be a very different world. And the trouble with leadership is that to do it properly, you've got to do things that go against the very grain of your human nature, the very programming in our DNA. For example, we have to risk not being liked. And for our human condition, it's been predicated on the fact that we seek affiliation and acceptance, that's it. And so doing things where you know you're putting yourself in a position where you may not be liked, well, that takes some real mental discipline to get across that and then to practice it, to willingly do it until you get to the point where it doesn't hurt anymore, where it's part and parcel of what you do. And to subordinate your own desires and your own drives for the good of someone else, whether it's an individual who works for you, whether it's the organization, is an incredibly difficult thing to do, which is why there are so few good leaders around. And then because of the lack of attention to the fundamentals of leadership, what we're finding is that in the last, I don't know how many years, maybe 10 years, leadership developments become all about virtue signaling. Okay. Great leaders are humble, great leaders are fallible, great leaders are transparent, great leaders have integrity, da 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 da. All great stuff. I, I would never say that those aren't great things. However, they tell you nothing about what to do. They help you identify with these aspirational characteristics without giving you any idea what you might do to change. So, for example, if I decided I needed to be more humble, where would I start? What would I do? How would I develop greater humility? I mean, there's no roadmap. No. So, no big. Can I say the you can full say whatever word? You I'll, want. I'll say with this. I'll, <laughs> yeah. say, I'll say with this. Okay. With no BS leadership, I don't want to offend any of your audience. With no BS leadership, it's really about giving leaders the tools and the knowledge of what they need to do to get better. If you want to be a, a leader, you want to lead properly, you want to create results because 
Yeah. All of this virtue signaling stuff, it's disconnected the process of leadership from the need to achieve results. They basically they're decoupled. And so I'm trying to reconnect those. Okay, you're a leader, your organization's paying you to lead people. Guess what? They're entrusting you with resources. They expect outcomes. You've got to go after those outcomes. You want, you want to be a leader? Here's what you need to do. And by the way, this is actually good for your people too if you do it the right way. So how much pushback do you get? Um, very little pushback. I get ignored. <laughs> Interesting. So, so anyone, anyone that this doesn't resonate with, they just don't pick up the content. And I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. So the sweet spot for us is sort of like a mid-career through to C-suite leader. Okay. And the reason for that is because it's typically appealing to people who have been leading for long enough that they know it's a hell of a lot harder than it looks. And that's the first thing. So they understand the problem. They have the weight of problem definition in their hands. But they haven't been doing it for so long that they think they're getting away with it. Mm. And so, you know, at the very tops of these organizations, you've got a whole host of people who just believe their own BS. That, that's it. Simple, right? As you said, as you said before, drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Yeah, and for sure. And they believe their own BS and they believe they're great leaders. And, uh, you know, there's endless research that shows that the self-impression of senior leaders about how they lead is night and day different, 180 degrees different from what their people say when they're asked the same questions. Do not get me started on that because that's a 65 part series. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we have often worked with people. In fact, I just had a call. Um, I just had a call not too long ago, Marty, where somebody said to me, they reached out to me several times about my leadership training. And then on the call, my calls are usually 30 to 45 minutes. I was doing a discovery call. I was doing it pretty quickly because I didn't, there was a lot of things that weren't aligning, but I still wanted to be respectful and refer. I still wanted to make sure I could help. Yeah. And I, he told me, no joke. He told me 14 times in 20 minutes that he was a great leader. <laughs> I said, how do you know? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, why are you calling me? Like, I don't understand. Like you're calling me. And then how do you know you're a great leader? And he was like, uh, well, I've been in this position. I said, but there's a lot of people that are in positions that are not sure. great leaders. Who told you you're a great leader? And he was literally like, you just see him shrink. He like literally shrunk in his chair. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you don't really know. And you are drinking your own Kool-Aid. So I'm probably not the best coach for you. Yeah. If anyone, if anyone tells you they're a great leader, they're probably not. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a learning leader, right? So I'm, I'm right. learning about the things that go into leadership. But I am very, very confident about the framework I've put together with no BS leadership because that's about cutting through the things and developing the right habits and disciplines to get the right results. And so I'm very confident in that framework because I've used it over a number of years in the field of battle. So I know that works, right? Right. Tested and true. I mean, you've totally, done it. Totally. Right. But Absolutely. When it comes to some of the subtleties and some of the, <clears throat> some of the things I do, you know, there's things I do every day where I go, ah, oh, you know, I could have done that a bit better. <laughs> so, and that's part of it, right, is, is always right. being open to the possibility that, you know, you're not doing things the best way and always trying to fine tune that continuous improvement thing, which I think is really important. Absolutely. So you've been on record four or five times that I found of saying poor leadership is one of the most significant issues out there. Do your peer group, do they agree with you or, or what is your viewpoint on that? And what would you say to people who say it's not that serious of an issue? Uh, well, look, I think self-evidently it is. The people who say it isn't an issue are the ones who are protecting their own position, I think. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of difference between a good business executive and a great leader. Now there are countless great business executives out there. And from my experience, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working with hundreds, not, not a few hundreds of incredibly capable, intelligent, driven, experienced executives who in terms of running a business are unbelievable. But in terms of unlocking the potential of people, 
by leading better, they're absolutely hopeless. I mean, I can count the number of great leaders I've worked with on one hand, don't need all my fingers for it either. I mean, there's only a few that I've run, to, run into that I'd say, that person is a great leader for these reasons. None of them are perfect, of course, but and I'm not. But to be able to identify these leadership characteristics and say, that's someone that I would emulate. And, and there are very few of those around. That's the asset test, right? Would you emulate that leader? Yeah. And I, and I couldn't agree with you more. There's a lot of people that I like. There's a lot of people that I can look at them and go, wow, they're a fabulous businessman. Yeah. But leadership, impacting, inspiring, creating, evolving, learning, constant and curious student. Mm -mm. I'd say same with you, under five. Yeah. Yeah. And then we cover that with rationalization. Right? Mm -hmm. So we're always rationalizing the things that we do. I, I've had so many people say to me, and I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard this. Oh, Marty, I'm, I'm a specialist at building high-performing teams. Hmm. Okay, well, just talk me through that, would you? And so it turns out that a high-performing team in some people's heads is a team where everyone gets on, there are no arguments, we're all happy, we go for drinks on Friday together, we get through our workload by the end of, by the, end of the week, and we're a high-performing team. Wow. And that's nothing like what a high-performing team is. And no. Just the concept of, you know, it's not about getting on. Some of the best teams I've ever run have been hanging together by a thread. Like they're, yeah. they're hard to manage, right? Because yeah. you've got a whole bunch of, you know, A-type characters who are driven and committed and hardworking and, you know, passionate about what they do. They don't always agree. And sometimes you, it's, it's like you're refereeing in an MMA fight. Yes. And so, and, and then so, you yeah. know you have a high-performing team. Yeah, running in a high-performing <laughs> team and being able to harness the difference. Like this, is, this is my big thing about diversity is harnessing difference. And you can, you can fill a seat with any type of person you like. You can, you can differentiate based on gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, anything. But it's a waste of time unless you actually can bring that out and bring out those diverse perspectives and life experiences and views and... You know, that's where the power and the magic is. And so when you put a team together like that and you can make it work, then you know it is incredible. And you see the difference between the results that that type of team produces and the results that are produced by the team where everyone gets on well and no one offends each other. As you brought out, it's so different because, you know, again, when you're when you're a leadership consultant or a leadership coach, people, you know, we one of the biggest things, kind of my secret sauce, my special sauce, if you will, was I had a 1% turnover. So I didn't hire normally. I didn't look at resumes. They should be able to talk to me about what they've done and what they loved and what they didn't love and all this other stuff. However, when I was looking at why is there so much churn, when I'm looking at Telstra, okay, and I'm looking at why is there so much churn or GM or Ford, and it was because all of these managers, all these leaders were hiring people that were like themselves. Oh, yeah. And that's not what you want for a diverse team or a high-performing team. You want somebody to fill in nicely the holes and feel as though they are cherished for these type of things. They are growing, they're evolving, and they are important. And you don't want them to be exactly like you. And you have leadership, you have leadership go. <laughs> I know. So. Absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, the world is populated with like leaders who want to have yes men around them, yes women around them. You know, it's, it's, I want people to confirm what I'm saying because I'm a little bit insecure. I don't want to be challenged. I want to have people who are going to execute what I want them to do. And so you have an enormous number of leaders who fall into that category for a start. It's a very, very interesting question, that one. I mean, how many different ways can you look at diversity? Well, I mean, let's look at it from the perspective that says you need a lot of it to make a difference. You need a lot of it. And the, the group think that comes from hiring everyone in your own image becomes apparent really, really fast. Like you, you see really, really quickly. And when it comes to getting 
different opinions in a room, I like to hire people from different industries who've had different experiences across different industries, different geographical locations. Have you ever led a team in Thailand, in India, in you know North Carolina, in New Zealand? You know what I mean? Because all of those have slight cultural differences and you learn so much from that and bring different perspectives to the table. So the experience that can be brought into a team from people who've done different things. So I have a very, very unfair question for you, but I'm so <laughs> interested. Not. I'm so interested in your- You can ask anything, Stephanie. <laughs> so, you know, as coaches, and, and we talk about this all the time, one of our biggest jobs is meeting our clients where they are. Very difficult sometimes, okay? Because a lot of times we think they're in a different spot than they do. <laughs> yes. But nonetheless, it is meeting them where they are. Right now, what is the number one piece of advice you have for our listeners trying really hard to be aspiring true leaders? The number one piece of advice is become more empathetic. Now, that sounds soft. It's not. There's a difference between empathy and sympathy. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, really clear on the difference. Don't know if I've got time to walk through it. I'll, I'll maybe give you a one liner. But in terms of empathy, empathy is simply being able to put yourself in other people's shoes. It's being able to understand the world and to see things from another person's perspective. And this is the key driver for almost everything. You, now, I know you do a lot of negotiation at a high level. You think about negotiation, right? If you just go in there knowing your game plan, understanding what you want, and going in with a set of objectives, well, you know, you might get those, you might not, you'll get a portion of them. But if you go in there trying to understand your counterpart, what are they after? What creates value for them? What, what's their value of, what, what's their um, definition of a good deal? If you can actually understand that and work it out through asking good questions, focusing on that individual, you're much more likely to get what you want. You're much more likely to get an outcome that both of you find value in. And some things that, as you know, in a negotiation are of little value to you, but of high value to your counterpart, well, you can give that to them and trade it for something else. They'll have something that means nothing to them that is of really high value to you. So, you know, when you've got a, a big complex negotiation with many moving parts, it's the empathy that's going to get you there. You can have all the negotiating techniques in the world. You can have all the smarts about the business and the, the numbers of the deal and everything else, but you're not gonna do well unless you can put yourself in someone else's shoes. Bring it back to I know, I know I told you I wasn't going to give you a long answer. I lied. No, this is great. No, I, I'm, I'm shaking my head. I'm agreeing with you because I just had this conversation with several attorneys who right. were negotiating yeah, yeah, yeah. a deal and they were, they were negotiating an emotional argument with logic. Yeah, they didn't yeah, yeah. even, they, they, it, it's like, Marty, they were dumbfounded. They were like, we are the strongest negotiators. I was like, you haven't even asked the right questions. Like, I, I know. it's I amazing. Know. So no, I appreciate the answer. Please keep going. And, and, and the curiosity aspect that comes with it, of course, you know, so when someone says something that would make you feel as though you were being slighted or that mm. they were trying to take advantage of you or that provoked some other sort of reaction, I just go straight to curiosity. Hmm, well, I wonder why they, wonder why they said that. Or I wonder why they think that would be acceptable to me. And, right. and those types of questions. And then, of course, once you get really confident, you can echo those out loud. So someone would say something and say, oh, why do you think that might be acceptable to me? And you start a whole different dialogue it's at a different level. Now, let's let's just, not everyone's involved in high high end complex negotiations, right? But let's just bring it down to the first job as a team leader that you get. You get promoted from being an individual contributor. You're now a leader, and you've got to lead a team. Are you going to have a difficult conversation with one of your people? Well, you can avoid it. You don't have to do it. You can roll your sleeves up and cover any gaps that they've left for you and just increase your workload. You can do all of that. That's fine. With empathy, you learn to understand that 
your feelings of not wanting to step into an uncomfortable situation nowhere near as important as the individual that you're leading who needs to hear some feedback so that you can give them the opportunity to grow and develop. And so it completely changes the psychology and the mental frame around what a difficult conversation is. I, I might be a little bit afraid of it. I don't really know what I'm doing. I feel uncomfortable. But to serve this individual properly, they deserve to hear what I've observed as their leader. And, and, it's, so and, and, that's, and it's all about serving Absolutely. as you being a leader, you have to show them what they're doing so they can get better and grow. It's not Absolutely. about your title. It's not about your pay grade. It's not about your, any of your promotions. It's about being a leader to this person is helping them solution and navigate and grow. For sure. Yeah. And that's why it's empathy that enables you to do that. Empathy gives you the, the tools you need in your hands to see what needs to be done, and then you're much more likely to execute on it. So, so empathy is not soft, fluffy, right? Empathy is about see the other person, see what they need, and do that. Even if it's not in your own best interest, do what serves the other person, do what serves the organization, do what's in the best interest of the team. Thank you so much for that explanation. As you know, the entire show is about obstacles and opportunities. Tell me what the biggest obstacle that you've been through thus far that you've been able to turn into an opportunity. Let me take the most recent one. <laughs> Your wife hating you from Australia to Boston in the snow. That one? <laughs> I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a wife who loves me, even though I brought her back to the snow. So just, uh, Amazing. just your listeners, <laughs> Stephanie and I were talking before we started recording about my recent move to Boston, which happened you know, only six or eight months ago. My wife is a native Bostonian. And when I married her in 2008, we moved to Australia and have since been living in sunny Brisbane, which is just the most beautiful climate you could possibly so imagine. So lovely. It's like, it's like Florida, right? It's, it's beautiful. And um, when I told her that I wanted to come back to the US and live in Boston because of you know, the business growth that we were experiencing, she looked at me skeptically and said, I promised I would never go back to the snow. And I said, I know you did. We won't be there long. We'll do a recce around the US and find a warmer place to live there. But let's start in Boston because that's where we've got family. That's where we know everyone. So we'll start there. And the first time a snowstorm came, I cannot tell you the look on her face. <laughs> I'm more concerned about the look on your face when you were looking at her. <laughs> well, for me, it's novelty, right? I'm, a, I'm, an Aussie, I'm an Aussie in Boston. What do I care? This is all fun, right? But no, but, but in genuine terms, just the, the concept of just picking up from a very established life, as you said, why, why would I give up a high level well-paid CEO role predictably, which I could have sat in for a number of years and just had a cushy retirement. Why would I give that up and walk into the complete uncertainty and disruption of starting up a business with a blank sheet of paper in the most crowded market on the planet, right? So, so that in itself was tricky. But then, of course, with COVID, the market's changing under our feet. The publication of my book last year was put back by six months. We went from a, a spring publication to a fall publication just because COVID impact was brutal. Uh, and of course, everyone's suffered to different degrees. For me, I'm extraordinarily grateful. Our business has prospered throughout. I've been very fortunate in that regard. And we've built the business in a way that makes it, let's call it pandemic proof. <laughs> but still, you know, just, just selling our house, getting rid of all of the material goods we had. And I just said to Kathy, we're going with a couple of suitcases, right? We're, we'll work it out. We'll get to the other side, we'll work it out. And, um, you know, just couch surfing for six months with you know various friends in Australia before we moved, getting over here with all the restrictions on leaving Australia, on coming to the US, all of those have presented pretty significant challenges. Coming here to open up a business in a speaking market that is still on its knees from, you know, conference cancellations and COVID restrictions, you know, pretty interesting timing. But 
I look at that and I go, this is awesome. Like everyone else is turning around and giving up. I'm not. No, exactly. I mean, to your point, we've pivoted three different times and I don't know how you give up and, and then call yourself, you know, a constant and curious student or, or an evolving leader. I don't know how you give up because you constantly want to be the example of, I can do this. We can do this together. Like, let's build this together. This is what teams are. Humility, empathy, grace, connection. These are the things that, that, that they are. It's purposeful. So what you've done is just incredible. You have to send me a signed book. You have to. I'll be so excited for that. Please tell our listeners where they can find you and learn more and follow you. Yeah, I think uh, martingmore.com, as it's spelled, martingmore.com. For our corporate site, and particularly for our Australian audience, yourceomentor.com. So Your CEO Mentor is the name of our prime business vehicle. And uh, we've got a whole lot of goodies there. But I think beyond anything else, just listen to a podcast episode or two, because that's where you work out whether I'm too full on for you or whether there's some real value there for you. So no BS leadership on all your great podcast players. Uh, that's that's how you'll find me and work out whether we like each other. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been amazing for the audience, and I am so excited to get your episode up. Thanks, Stephanie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my my website at stephaniemalik.com.